Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden Podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Gavriel Hakoen, and joining me today, as always, is my BFF, IFB cult survivor, Sadie Carpenter. Hello, hello. Great to be here today. It's great to be here with you always. Even though we are together like a mile apart. You know, I was thinking about something, Sadie. It feels to me like you have been doing a ton of reading in the past few weeks um because you know last week we had an episode about fundamental seduction uh the week before that we had an episode about the abeka textbooks and today i guess it's like a trifecta three days in a row or three episodes in a row uh we are talking about a book that you've been reading that's true i guess i want to make sure that everybody knows that we are going to do other topics that aren't books next week (laughs) Um, we're not switching over to being a fully book-based podcast, but also this... Sadly. Yeah, it's not Sadie's book club. No. Uh, don't ask me to start another podcast until my kid's at least a year old. 
<laughs> but also, this episode is really different from the other books that we've been looking at. I don't feel too bad about having three books in a row because they've all been extremely different in scope. I thought I was going to go through and do a page-by-page review of the book that we're looking at this week. But then once I got into it, I found out that it is simultaneously too boring and too insane for that. <laughs> so, so what we're going to do instead... um. I'm going to pick some parts out of this book, try to debunk some specific claims, and I'm going to share all of my snarkable moments of craziness that I have found in here. You know what I think? What do you think? I think it's good that we're talking about books. I think it means that we respect our audience enough to understand that they know how to read. But we're not asking them to read. We're reading for them. So we respect that our audience knows how to read, but also that our audience are busy people who don't <laughs> uh, have time to sit and read bunches of cult propaganda and anti-propaganda like fundamental seduction. No. Um, and if they actually paid attention to the things that this book says, then they definitely wouldn't have enough time to read because they would be taking care of way too many kids. Because this book that we're reading today is not a book like fundamental seduction. This is another piece of cult materials or cult propaganda or whatever, that has been sent to us by mail by a listener. So Sadie, would you like to do the honors and tell our listeners what it is that we are reading about today? Yes. So today we're going to go through the IBLP Advanced Seminar Textbook. This was sent to us by Stephanie Rice, who is a listener. Uh, so thank you so much to Stephanie. This is actually a present that we got quite a while ago. and We're just now getting around to talking about it on the show. Yeah, so we're talking about the IBLP Advanced Seminar. This book is written by Bill Gothard, Billy the Goth, Bank Bills Gothard, Bill Gothard, uh, whatever you want to call him. He wrote this book to tell you how to live. Yeah, and if you if you are just catching up for whatever reason, of course, we recommend that you listen to our two episodes on the Duggars and our episodes on Bill Gothard and the BLP. But just as a real quick catch up, uh, this is the group to which the Duggar family belongs. IBLP stands for Institute in Basic Life Principles. Bill Gothard started the Basic Youth Conflict Seminar in the 1960s. He would travel around the country having seminars in stadiums and colleges. And it was this was a thing that, that people did at the time was they had Christian events in like big stadiums. And his event was all about how understanding a few basic principles that he had inferred from scriptures would change your entire life. Arguably not, maybe not a cult at that point kind of hazy mm. getting like very, all, very much on the road to culthood like a weird self-help thing like but like yeah but like lots of traveling evangelists and preachers had big seminars at the time but gothards were pretty popular and he started to expand his business into other areas uh and as the teenagers that he was originally intending to minister to grew up he wanted to write more material for them as they grew into families Notably, he he made the the basic seminar and the advanced seminar for families. So people would have to take the basic seminar before the advanced seminar. And I believe each one takes about a week to complete of attending every day to complete. And then people would have to complete the advanced seminar before being allowed to apply to join Bill Gothard's homeschool group, ATI, the Advanced Training Institute. And of course, you need to do all of that to make sure that God's hand of blessing and God's umbrella of protection are on your family, which will absolutely guarantee that none of your kids end up like Josh Duggar. Oops. Oof, yeah. Oops. Mm. Clearly, very effective 
a very effective method here. God. So we're going to talk about this book, um, but don't worry, speaking of the Duggars, we are definitely going to shift gears at the end of the episode to talk about Michelle Duggar and Pantsgate. If you know what we're talking about, you know what we're talking about. But before we get into all of that, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about Sadie Carpenter, my co-host's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult-like thinking and cult-like groups have towards society as a whole. And it is our mission to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, there's a couple of things that you can do to support this program. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Leaving Eden Podcast, where we have extended and uncensored versions of all of our episodes, including this one that you're listening to right now. If you want to talk to other fans of the show, you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus, and you can join our subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. As always, the biggest thing that you can do to support our show is to recommend it to your family, your friends, your coworkers, your enemies, anyone who you think would benefit or might enjoy this program that we work so hard to make. The fourth and final thing that you can do to support this show is to do just like Stephanie Rice did, uh, who made today's episode possible. If you have any cult materials maybe lying around the house, send us a message on Facebook or Instagram or, or Twitter or uh, to the email address at leavingedenpod at gmail.com and tell us what you've got and maybe we're interested and maybe you want to send it to us. And finally, I want to thank our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons. And boy, is there a lot of them now. I want to thank Dee Dee Keppel, Emery Fairlosser, new one this week, Hope Norum. We love you, Hope Norum. Thank you for your contribution. Jessica Tambo, Kater Wee. Love you, Kater Wee. Name is so fun to say. Uh, Catherine Schneider, Kathleen Moncrief, Kristen Marie, Linda Morgan, Ruthie, Sarah Reese. A uh, new one from last week. And finally, Wes the Cowboy. Thank you, Wes the Cowboy. IBLP Advanced Seminar. Let's do it. Let's talk about it. Um, so when this book came in the mail, it came to my address uh, and I leafed through it before giving it to you. And my impression was that it was very scattered. One part etiquette guide, one part pseudoscience, mm -hmm. one part like Aesop's fables. You know what I'm saying? But like it would, yeah, but it would range from general good advice to things that are just like weird and bizarre. Like, and the advice felt extremely dated to like the, the 80s or the 70s or like the 60s. I like, I don't even know. I, mm. yeah, it is very scattered. I feel like if it went by principle, maybe it would make more sense. So there are seven, there are seven basic principles that Bill Gothard preaches design, authority, responsibility, ownership, suffering, freedom, and success. But, but the book isn't organized into seven sections. Like, here's how to apply the design principle in every area of your life. Here's how to apply authority in every area of your life. But that would be too easy. <laughs> the book is set up <laughs> by super specific topics. So it will be how to apply the seven principles to music. 
And then in that section, it'll have design authority, responsibility, ownership, so on and so forth. How to apply these seven principles to sleep. How to apply these seven principles in the relationship between a father and a daughter. So it's like, it's highly specific. It tends to a lot of repetition and it's also pretty hard to reference, but we're going to do our best. Do you know that meme from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where Charlie is standing in front of the bulletin board and he's got the string and he's looking for Pepe Silvia. I feel like we reference that meme a lot. That's the advanced training seminar in. in but a that's nutshell. like all funny things. <laughs> yeah, it's so apt. Like, it, how would you describe the advanced seminar? I'm, I'm not saying you're wrong about the meme. I'm just saying that a lot of fundies really think that way. It's it's part of the whole needing to be right thing. Like we can only please God if we go to great extents to get everything absolutely right. Honestly, that's just not the God that I believe in at this point in my life. I believe in a God who sees and accepts our best efforts. I think there are some things that should be obvious, like don't murder and don't steal. I think we should be very, very serious about following those obvious commandments. But I just don't think we need to go out on a limb to find out exactly how many inches below the knee address needs to be to make God happy. So if you were to describe the IBLP advanced seminar in one sentence, how would you describe it? Mm. Oh, I forgot to answer that. Um, (laughs) Highly specific self-help regimen, but make it culty. So I want to talk about how Gothard ascribes big issues to be caused by violations of his seven principles. Because I think I think that that's something he gets into really early in this book. And I think that's something that really sets up how he sees these seven principles as the actual answer to everything in life. In my experience, there are a lot of different kinds of self-help books. Some will try to be very general about your mindset and be like, if you keep X mindset, then it will help you in all aspects about your life. So sometimes it'll be like, if you make sure that you have extreme gratitude for whatever, then you'll feel better about you know whatever bad shit is happening to you. But then sometimes there are self-help books that will be like, oh, you need help in one particular area like dating or dieting or professional advancement. So which umbrella would you say that Bill Gothard's book falls under? Sorry, I had to make that joke. I see what you did there. Uh, This won't be the last umbrella joke of the day, by the way. (laughs) I promise. And if you want to know what that's about, you should probably just go back and listen to our previous IBLP-related episodes. Every time we talk about the IBLP, I got to post the umbrella, man. (laughs) (laughs) I got to do it. (laughs) So it's definitely one of those more general types of self-help books. The advanced seminar has examples of how it can apply to almost every area of your life, but it's about building the entire foundation of your mind and your feelings and the ones you're allowed to have and your like self-talk on these principles. This is the kind of self-help book that needs to be all-encompassing. So it's more like the secret And I actually kind of like comparing it to The Secret now that I think about that, because The Secret has a general message that I can really get behind, like manifesting what you want, um, being positive about good things coming into your life. I think that visualizing positive things coming to you and visualizing what you want is one part of uh, like that's that's a healthy thing that you can do, among other things. But like The Secret, this book says that it is the answer to absolutely everything in life, that you have to apply this principle to everything in your life, that it applies to every situation, and that if you're not 100% all in, it's not going to work for you. 
Let's talk about how the seven principles apply to broad, like, social issues. Let's start from there, and I think you'll get a picture of where he's going. Again, the, the, Bill Gothard is a really vague guy, just the way that he wa- writes. Um, so it's it's really hard to pin down exactly what he's saying. Um, but let's let's see how he applies it to broad issues, and I think that'll clarify really well. So there's a chart on page nine of this book. I'm just reading directly from the chart. By the way, there's a lot of charts in this book. Yeah. <laughs> Um, this chart has like the surface problem, the surface cause, the root problem, and the root cause. So the surface problem is abortion, euthanasia, and self-rejection. Self-rejection, I'm 99% sure that that's like a backhanded way to talk about LGBT people, specifically trans and non-binary people. Oh, because you're rejecting- You're rejecting who God made you to be. Oh, okay. okay, okay, Um... Why do we not have a soundboard where I can like ring a little bell? Okay, so the surface program, the surf- surface problem is abortion, euthanasia, and self rejection. The surface cause is overpopulation fear. The root problem is chance, in scare quotes, chance, and laws without God's intervention. And the root cause is a violation of the design principle. So Bill Gothard is saying, Abortion, euthanasia, and self-rejection, aka trans people, happen because of rejection of the design principle. I don't know what any of that means. So, <laughs> it's kind of word salad. Like this entire book that I read because I love our listeners. So, number one, I don't think overpopulation fears are a major reason reason for abortion, euthanasia, or self-rejection, whether that's referring to LGBT people or not. I, I think that's a flaw in his line of logic to begin with so is is that how this is set up though like so that's how this whole thing is set up is basically you just take various societal issues and boil it down to trust in god more yeah just like make a a, a logic chain to take it where you need it to go and we'll get to this later there's some very dubious logic chains in this book i'm sure that's extremely (laughs) surprising to all of our (laughs) listeners But yeah, like what he's saying is people get abortions, allow euthanasia and are gay because they don't understand gay or trans because they don't understand that God designed them the way they are and it's unchangeable. And because they're worried about overpopulating the earth, which again, I disagree. But So if people just understood, though, the design principle that God made you the way you are and it's unchangeable, they wouldn't do those things and those societal problems would be solved. I don't know. It, it's kind of giving me Michael Scott vibes. Like if Michael Scott were a cult leader, like, do you remember when he brought the fat suit in to bully his coworkers into trying to lose weight? This very much has that energy or like prison Mike energy to me. Uh, prison Mike. Yeah. Okay. Cause I, I don't I haven't seen the office in years, but you remember prison Mike, he like talks, he's like, yeah, the Dementors. like he's talking about something that he has no clue about, Azkaban. but with, with great conviction. That's kind of the vibe that I like. My impression was if you went to a three hour TED talk about a really complicated issue, but the person who was giving the talk learned about the subject from Instagram infographics. Yeah. Either way, it's somebody who is who is not deeply informed talking just with a lot of conviction um, because he is just really about these beliefs that he is convinced are right there there's some weird non sequiturs here beyond um, abortion happening because of overpopulation fears in in that same chart we see that the surface problem so there's another set like surface problem surface cause root problem root cause surface problem is mental breakdowns and suicide the surface cause is the scientific method 
this what I, I i don't see how those two things are related whatsoever I'm, i do not like okay so he says that like the the problem is abortion and euthanasia and the cause the surface cause is overpopulation fears and i disagree with him but i can see why somebody would think that even though i would still think they were wrong like if they've never met anybody who's actually had an abortion or well well or nobody that feels safe enough to tell them about it yeah more likely yeah i do not understand how the scientific method causes mental breakdowns and suicide because i can tell you that since i have learned about the scientific method i'm actually in a lot better place with my mental health so i feel like this is just not not true but the the root problem for that is human reasoning which makes slightly more sense i guess and it's a violation of the success principle which is also called identification and i don't know why that principle has two names i don't know why there aren't just eight i do not know don't ask me so not to make another pop culture reference but that's all we do on this show i'm sure you have seen monty python and the holy grail because this reminds me so much of the reason you know the scene where they have the witch and they have to decide they have to decide if the woman's a witch and they have to take her to the so they're like let's take her to the pond to see if she floats right if she floats she's a witch and we'll kill her and if she doesn't float then she'll drown but at least we knew she wasn't a witch yeah you burn witches what else do you burn you burn wood therefore witches are made of wood right and, and so how do you tell if something's wood well you throw it in the pond to see if it floats like <laughs> <laughs> That's like, I don't know. Like, I feel like that makes more sense than Bill Gothard saying that suicide happens because of the scientific method. <laughs> He's also like really yeah. fixated on sanity versus insanity. We'll get into some of that at some point. It's very binary. Yeah. 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 It also makes you wonder if he's... Fondies love a good binary. Yeah. And also, like, has he ever met anybody who felt safe enough to actually tell him about their mental health issues? And how did he respond to that? It really brings some questions. I mean, he probably said trust God more. Probably. So some of these in the chart, I want to be fair and say that some of these actually do make sense. I... It's one of those things, like, I do think he's wrong, but he at least makes sense and is coherent. So another another column from that chart, row from that chart, he says that the surface problem is drugs. The surface cause is elimination of pain probability. The root problem is no cause and effect. And the root cause is a violation of the suffering principle. So the suffering principle teaches us that sometimes God wants us to suffer, that suffering brings us closer to God. And when people do drugs, they are violating this principle by trying to prevent God from making them suffer. And if they understood this principle, they just wouldn't do drugs and get closer to God instead. I I think that's horrible, but it it is a train of thought that is coherent. It's a coherent train of thought if you've never done any drugs in your life. And the only information you have about drugs comes from Nancy Reagan and like Dare. Uh, by the way, shouts out to my girl, Nancy Reagan, the goat. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to quit with those, are you? No, I'm absolutely not. That's going to be on our next bingo card from Dinah. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like that's that's incorrect. Like that's not what I perceive to be the reason that people use illegal substances, but it's not. No, <laughs> it's, it's not. Absolutely not. Yeah, but it's it it's less wrong than abortion is caused by fear of overpopulation. <laughs> So the first big section in the book that I want to really dig into is called Understanding the Causes Behind Humanism. Question. Answer. What is humanism? Because I've, I've heard, yeah, I've heard you talk about the how the fundies hate humanism. I think recently you mentioned, I think it was the Abeka episode, but we haven't gotten 
What's a good definition of humanism? I'll read you a definition from the American Humanist Association. Their tagline is good without God or good without a God. And this is their definition. Humanism is a progressive philosophy of life that, without theism or other supernatural beliefs, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good. So it's basically that people don't need religion to be moral and good? Right. And it differs from atheism because the point is not there is no God. The point is human morals can be based on human logic and shared understanding of the world, not on a belief in a particular deity or religious structure. Of course, once again, this idea is fundy kryptonite because their entire worldview is if the Bible says it's good, it's good. If the Bible says it's bad, it's a sin and you shouldn't do it. Exactly. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have... From the fundies, you have me, who believes that the Bible can be compatible with our shared human non-theistic view of morality, and that people who draw moral inspiration from the Bible, like me, can find many points of agreement with people who find moral guidance in the principles of humanism. You know what this reminds me of? Okay, do, do you remember Christ- Christine Week, the monster energy lady? How could I ever forget? <laughs> Bottoms up and the devil laughs. Um I'm drinking an energy drink right now, actually. Uh, my drink of choice is Red Bull. Yeah, I, I remember when she was telling her story, though, uh, about how she was raised fundamentalist. And when she left, um, she rejected Christian fundamentalist morality. So she still accepted that Christian morality was the true morality, but she just decided that she wanted to do evil things because she thought they were bad. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't like, okay, I, I need to decide what's right or wrong it was i want to do things that i know are wrong even if those things aren't like actually harmful or evil so her refusal to accept essentially accept humanism was the thing that led her back to being a fundy right because certain types of christians many christians believe that their morality is the only true morality so any morality that is not dictated by christianity must be coming from satan and it's a whole can of worms because i think humanistic morality depends on situation ethics Christian morality says it is wrong to have sex with somebody that you are not currently married to. Humanist morality says it is wrong to have sex with somebody in a way that is harmful to them or you. So somebody who doesn't consent, uh, somebody who you know that if you do it, you're going to mess up their relationship, uh, many other like ethical guidelines around that. But there's no line. There's just guidelines as opposed to the Christian morality, which is don't do it. So Christians are really, really afraid of situation ethics because of that. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. But Gothard is going to tell us how humanism attacks the principles of scripture. The principles of scripture, of course, are, in Gothard's mind, his seven life principles. And I do want to note that this isn't a list in the Bible. In case you were wondering, um, this isn't from the New Testament or anything. He has just distilled the Bible into a list of seven principles, um, which is interesting. So when he talks about the design principle, it talks about how education uh, has become humanist. But what I actually want to get into is Gothard's description of humanism in the court system, because he's going to cite several cases. And that gave me an opportunity to actually look up these court cases and compare what he said to what actually happened. So what exactly is he trying to allege here? So the first one that he brings up is Byrne versus New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation from 1972. The book says about this case, 
Quote, New York's highest court ruled that their legislature must determine which human beings are actually persons which are entitled to live. Mm. And I think that statement is very obvious because, yes, <laughs> the legislature does need to determine what constitutes a legal person. Of course, the legislature needs to do that. That is an appropriate job for a legislature to do. But the way that he uses language, like which human beings are actually persons which are entitled to live, makes this sound extremely sinister. Mm. So what was the court case about? Because it sounds like it's about, is it about assisted suicide or is it about like removing a feeding tube from somebody who has no brain activity? So this is a, it is a patient's rights case sort of related to abortion. So I'll try to explain this as best as I can. The case gives several examples. One of them is a pregnant person who is a Jehovah's Witness, and she needed blood blood transfusions to save her life. If she didn't get the blood transfusions, she and her fetus would die. But she had a religious opposition to blood transfusions, so she didn't want to get them. So the case was based on, wasn't about, okay, there had already been a ruling in the specific matter of this woman who was a Jehovah's Witness, but this court case used that case as an example and other cases to argue whether the hospital can force a pregnant person to get a life-saving procedure simply because there is a fetus involved. So in New York, there was this ongoing case about abortion. This is pre-Roe, and in this case... This man, Robert Byrne, had been appointed as a legal guardian of all fetuses under 24 weeks who were going to be aborted. And this isn't this isn't as up as it sounds. I know this sounds really up. But in this case, when they were trying to decide whether those fetuses had legal rights as a American citizen, those fetuses needed a legal guardian so that there could be accurate representation from both sides for this case. The outcome, yeah, it it sounds super f***ed up when you say it, but when you read into what was actually going on, it makes a little more sense. Okay, so his job was just to advocate on behalf of of, of the fetuses if they were able to say, I want to live, which they can't because they're fetuses. Right. So this actually makes a little more sense. So the outcome of Burn versus New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation was the Supreme Court decided that legal personhood is not adequately defined in the Constitution or under New York law and that the New York State legislature needed to do something about it. So what? Okay. What are the what are they mad about? Exactly. Gothard just phrased it in a way that sounds really sinister. The outcome of the case was that the New York legislature was going to have to make some laws about this because there were not adequate laws, period. But the way that Gothard phrases it is, quote, New York's highest court ruled that their legislature must determine which human beings are actually persons which are entitled to live. So Gothard has got it phrased in such a way that it sounds super sinister. It sounds like the legislature is making laws that make it okay to kill people or to to kill almost full-term fetuses or like something super scary like that. That's nothing to do with this case. Okay, so I, I want to go back to the first the first part where you're talking about the, the Jehovah's Witness and the, the life-saving procedure. Yeah. Because this might be a situation where I find myself agreeing with the fundies here because obviously the fundies are going to say, yes, you have to save the life of this of, of this woman because she's pregnant, right? Or, or how long, how far along in the pregnancy was this woman? What's going on here? So just to tie this all together, this case related to the Burn versus New York City 
case because oh. is that is the fetus that the Jehovah's Witness mother is carrying is that a legal person and does that person deserve to have their life prioritized over the religious beliefs of the person carrying them that's that's why that example was brought into this case so Gothard in the book isn't trying to make a case for doing or not doing this medical procedure I feel like the fundies would be very divided on this because on one hand they do believe that they have to make every effort to save the life of a fetus but on the other hand they would throw a hissy fit about anyone being forced to make good medical decisions mm. So Don't I feel we like know it. <laughs> right. So I feel like that's probably why Gothard didn't go any further into this because now he's ingratiated himself to both sides by making something else the enemy. Yeah, and you have to basically make both of them think that you're on their side. I guess in my perspective, we talked about this we talked about this in the abortion episode is that in Jewish law, saving the life is the most important thing. So if you have to have an abortion done to save the mother's life, you do it. Like you, you have to do it, mm-hmm. and and this is like double that because you're not just save you're saving the mother's life and you're saving the life of the fetus. So th- like this woman saying no procedure, I'm gonna die, and the the fetus is gonna die. That's doubly vulgar to me, and it makes zero sense whatsoever. Yeah, I think that's really understandable that this would be upsetting to you. The thing is that you. I do believe in supporting a patient's religious rights, even if that means that they die. Uh, so, you know, somebody who's who is JW and does not want to receive blood transfusions, I sincerely wish that they would reconsider. I sincerely wish that they wouldn't do that. I think they're incorrect, but I think it's their right to go ahead and die if they're not harming anybody else. Um Read into that statement what you will. But this is potentially harming another person, depending on if you're conferring legal personhood on the fetus that this person is carrying. So what I'm getting to with this, though, it, it's in this case, Byrne versus New York City Health and Hospital Corporation. The outcome was that the New York Supreme Court determined that the legislature needed clearer guidelines for legal personhood. Because if a fetus from a certain gestational age had legal personhood, then the hospital would be able to force the pregnant person to have blood transfusions to save the fetus's life. But if the fetus did not have legal personhood, the hospital would not be able to force her to do that. But Bill Gothard has represented it as... New York's highest court ruled that their legislature must determine which human beings are actually persons which are entitled to live. So do you see how he's like, he's told the truth, but in a very twisted wording there? Yes. It's, that is really weird. Where I like low key get where he's coming from, but like not because this is such a weird way to say that. That's not mm-hmm. he's it's it's very dis, uh, misrepresenting of what's actually going on. If you just read what Gothard wrote and you did not look into what the court case was, you would think that it was something very scary and and. He's he's demonized it when actually this court case is kind of a net neutral, if not a positive for the pro-life cause. The wording when he says which human beings are actually persons, that wording makes it sound totally different than what actually happened in the case. Yeah, because what did the court decide? The court basically said this is a legal ambiguity and the legislature needs to clarify this in law. The court decided the legislature has got to make some laws about this. That's it. That happens all the time. 
So the other case that Gothard cites that I want to get into, um, which I think he even misrepresents worse, is Infant Doe versus Bloomington, Indiana Hospital. It's a case from 1982. So here's Gothard's quote on the case. Indiana courts, parents, and hospital allowed an unwanted newborn baby to starve to death. Whoa. Which sounds terrible. Yeah. And it, 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 it is terrible, but let me get into the facts of what happened here. In 1982, a baby was born in Bloomington, Indiana with Down syndrome and a serious birth defect of the trachea and esophagus, which would have required immediate surgery to correct. The doctor of this newborn recommended that the parents not go through with the surgery because there was no guarantee that it would work. There was no guarantee that the baby would live long. So even if the surgery worked, the baby still might not live very long and the baby would still have severe developmental problems because of the Down syndrome, whether the surgery worked and whether or not the baby lived very long. So with all those complicating factors, the doctor said it's better not to do it and just let your baby die peacefully. The parents decided, with the doctor's recommendation, not to go through with the surgery. Mm. So this went to the Indiana Juvenile Courts because people wanted to, this case got media attention and people wanted to force the parents to do the surgery to give the baby the best chance at survival. The Indiana Juvenile Courts upheld the parents' right to make an informed medical decision on the advice of their doctor. So then this case was appealed to the Indiana Supreme Court, which refused to hear the case. And shortly after it got turned down by the Indiana Supreme Court, Baby Doe died of dehydration and pneumonia. So there are... There are several ways that Gothard has misrepresented this. The first one I want to point out is that Gothard called this baby unwanted, which I wasn't able to find corroboration for anywhere. So unwanted is what people say about babies that are going to get aborted. That's yes. that's the word that they use for babies that, I mean, for all we know, this could have been like a planned pregnancy. I fully believe that it was because both both parents were present and making medical decisions and obviously the parents aren't named because of the media hype around this but you if you read about this both parents were present and making medical decisions for the baby which makes me think that this was not a quote unquote unwanted baby I think this was a wanted baby, but born that was born with unexpected medical issues because again, this is 1982. Uh, in 1982, they did not do ultrasounds. So, so when I was pregnant with Chuck, I had a blood test to tell me about her chromosomes at like nine or ten weeks, and I got the results back at thir- thirteen weeks. I had a neural tube ultrasound at twelve weeks which would have clued me in if she had Down syndrome or another chromosomal problem. And then I had a follow-up ultrasound at 20 weeks, which would have also clued me in to any potential birth defects that were going to happen. But in 1982, they didn't have that. And you often didn't find out until your baby was born that they had a chromosomal difference. I believe that this was a that this was a planned pregnancy and then the baby was unexpectedly born with severe medical issues. And this is one of those situations I would never be able to say what's right or wrong unless I was in that position myself and it was my child. But th- Oh good. Yeah, yeah, we're back to 100% agreeing <laughs> again. Thank goodness. Yeah. Ugh. No, exactly. You do not know what's right in that situation unless you're a parent or the doctor in that situation. We should be staying out of the parents and the doctor's decisions and letting them make those decisions as best as they can. And by the way, if you want to know what we're referencing when we're like, we're back in agreement again, Sadie and I just had our biggest disagreement ever on the Patreon. Is that clickbait? (laughs) Yes. uh, Give us money. (laughs) 
<laughs> and you can hear it. Uh, no, but it, like it just wasn't related to the rest of the episode, really. So like and it was like very long winded. So like <laughs> cut it for time. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, but the, the second thing I want to say about this Baby Doe case is that this brought about in the next few years, the Baby Doe rules under the Reagan administration. The baby doe rules are very complicated and there are all of these like if this then that but this is the exception but the bottom line is if a baby is born with medical problems it is illegal to deny care regardless of whether the baby has a different disability that is unrelated to those medical problems the mm. only exception is if it is not likely that the baby will survive anyway. And honestly, this is probably an okay thing overall to just say that hospitals cannot deny medical care to a newborn if it is likely that the medical care will be effective. So I don't know all the implications of this law, but that makes sense the way that you explained it. Because, because I mean, otherwise, you know, what did people used to do back in the day, you know, centuries ago, if there was like a baby that was born with Down syndrome or something like that, then they would like just let it die. Just leave yeah, it. Yeah, just leave it. Yeah, That's like, horrible. You can't do that. That's eugenics. The op- Yeah, I was, I was just about to say the opposite of this law gets real eugenics real fast. Yeah. So while I'm not the biggest fan of the government being that involved in somebody's health decisions for their child, I think this is this is a pretty good law as far as these things go, because it, it's going it, to I think this is something that unfortunately just needs to be codified. Yeah. Like, regardless of whether it rankles me a little bit to, like, to, like, have the government be this involved. It's rare, but it'll happen. Right. So, Bill Gothard just talks about the Baby Doe case, though. He completely fails to mention that there was a huge win for pro-life people that came out of this. So, one baby, Baby Doe, died. Because of the recommendations of the doctor, it was upheld by an Indiana court. I wasn't there. I'm not going to try to make a determination on whether that was correct or not. I'm just going to trust the doctor that was there. But pro-life people have this myth that if a baby is born alive from a failed abortion, for example, which, again, doesn't happen now, but may have happened in the past, the evil abortion doctors will just shove the baby in a closet until it dies hours or days later. And it's not that this has never happened in the history of back alley abortionists ever. This is a thing that has happened before, but this is 100% illegal. This is really just a bit of Pravda, isn't it, though? Well, Bill Gothard, he tells you, yeah, he tells you about the case that sparked these laws, but not the laws. He doesn't tell you about the massive win for his side that came out of this. So he's having people who read his material continue to live in fear. Unwanted newborns starve to death. When in reality, laws have been passed to the contrary. And in case you were wondering, I did look all of this up. The baby doe rules were issued through the Department of Health and Human Services in 1983. There was some legal back and forth. Is this constitutional? Is it not? The rules became law in 1984. They are still law and federal organizations must comply with them to keep funding. That was before this book came out. That's exactly my point. Um yeah, Bill got so this becomes the the baby doe incident happens in 1982. It becomes law in 1984. Bill Gothard publishes this book in 1986, and he's using this as a scare tactic, even though the battle has already been won. Man, Bill Gothard, like, he just can't take a W, can he? No, because that would, like, that would undermine his position. It's like, oh, I'm getting persecuted. If you're funny, they've got to convince you that you're losing and that the devil is slowly taking over in order to keep you motivated. 
That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly what I see here. Now, I know that I've spent a a good chunk of our episode on these court cases, but I really thought that the way that he manipulated and worded them was so important because it shows us so much about the very processed way that he's presenting things to his followers and the conclusions that he is very blatantly leading them to. What other evidence is there in this book? So I just have a little snark for you before I move on to the next proper section of the book. Let's hear it. (laughs) Just a couple things that I've noticed that are have just they're just weird and wacky. Um, This book talks about how humanism is responsible for homosexuality. And every time the term homosexuality is used, which is several times in a paragraph, there are scare quotes around it. And I know that this is homophobic and this is othering. Like just those tiny little marks are completely invalidating LGBT people. And that's very, very bad. I understand that this is bad, but also these scare quotes are just so pathetic and funny to me. I swear, gay people live in the fundies heads, rent free. <laughs> Absolutely rent free. <laughs> So my other, it's so pathetic. It's like, like, yes, he's doing a very bad thing, but it's just like, I'm so scared of gay people that I have to put quotes around them. So I feel like now every time I write Bill Gothard, I'm going to put scare quotes around his name. Um, my other little snark is this massively f***ed up quote. Humanistic permissiveness has made suicide the number one cause of teenage death. Whoa. Okay, Bill. Humanism. Uh, question answer (laughs) what was the number one cause of teenage death before it was suicide was it car crashes oh like what was it it before humanism took over yeah because that that's because if it's car crashes then maybe you know it's one of those situations where like the car crash rate like the deaths from car accidents goes way down and so now there's a new leading cause of death like maybe he should be blaming seatbelts for suicide being the leading cause of death not humanism so i found a proper peer-reviewed paper from a medical journal. Oh, interesting. This paper is from the Journal of Mental Health Administration. And it was, I don't know, that's not a medical journal. That's a journal. It's an academic journal. It's not a medical journal. Okay, but it's peer reviewed. So Uh, should be. It's in a journal. It was published in 1989. So Gothard would not have had access to this paper when he was writing his book. But the statistics from 1989 should be reasonably similar to the statistics from 1986. What I found out is that suicide was not the leading cause of teenage death. Suicide has never been the leading cause of teenage death because I checked recent statistics and statistics from the 90s as well. Homicide injuries and motor vehicle accidents, predictably, are all ahead of suicide. What you've said so far, this book just, it seems like it's a 200 page long chain email. You know, just like really rambly, making all sorts of claims on scant evidence and like a few very questionably interpreted Bible verses. It's a chain email combined with a self-help book. But you mentioned questionably interpreted Bible verses, and I actually do want to talk about how Gothard interprets scripture. So is this different in any way from the way that the IFB generally interprets scripture? We're dealing with literal interpretation both ways, the Gothard way and the IFB way. But I think it's a different kind of literal interpretation, and I'm going to do my best to explain it with a few examples from the book. So yeah, yeah, why don't you... Give us a verse and then tell us how the IFB would interpret it and then tell us how Bill Gothard and the IBLP are going to interpret it. So I'm reading the section, Consequences from Sensual Material. 
Before you ask, no, uh, the advanced training manual does not define sensual material, which is super helpful. But they know it when they see it. I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really not 100% sure what would or wouldn't make the list. Maybe that's the point. Like, I think it's vague because people will get convict, quote unquote, convicted over random things and then get rid of them. Of course, this book suggests that they be replaced with Christian classics, good music, and biographies of great Christians. And I wonder whether the IBLP sold Christian classics, good music, and biographies of great Christians. Hmm. (laughs) Makes makes you think. So this section is referencing what Heather was talking about with doing spiritual cleanses on the home. This is about why you should be getting rid of those things, like what will happen if you don't. So under consequences from sensual material, I see two types of biblical application going on here. So the first type, um, there's, uh, hang on, I want to look at this section while I read it. There are 10 consequences from sensual material that are listed in this book. And Mm. some of the points are interpreting scripture one way and some of them are interpreting it another way. So the first way, point one, it produces guilt by violating God's inborn moral laws. The verse given there is Romans 2.15, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. And it goes on to quote the rest of the verse. So what are God's inborn moral laws? Hang on, I'll, Um, I'll get to that. Written in their hearts, their conscience also be- is that just like everybody knows this is wrong, so obviously it's wrong. Yes, yeah. but if you're raised fundy, you have a vague feeling that everything is wrong. Oh, so if you're just feeling guilty all the time, then that means that everything that exists in the- like oh, okay, because you're sense. a fundy, you feel an overwhelming, like crippling sense of guilt and shame all the time. That let me tell you. Gosh, how long has it been for me? 10 years? Eight years? Eight years later? It's still with you. (laughs) So it's just confirmation bias. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Brainwashed in confirmation bias because I feel guilty and bad and wrong all of the time. So whatever I'm doing at the time that I feel guilty and bad and wrong is probably a sin. Uh, But point on to the the scripture interpretation part of this. Point two, uh, sensual material damages the marriage by causing mental adultery. The verse quoted is Matthew 5, 28. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And then point four, sensual material lays the foundation for insanity by encouraging gratification without responsibility. And the verse quoted is James 1, 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. What? I told, I told you, I think, earlier in this episode that he's got this weird fixation on insanity. But these points, what Gothard has done in points uh, one, two, four, and other points on this list is find a scripture verse that sort of relates to the point that he's making and presenting that verse as if it is proof of his point, even though it's not. So he's essentially just proof texting. Sort of, but also not even proof texting because, okay, look at point four. Does James 1.8 say anything about sensual material? No. No, it it talks about being double-minded. For it to be proof texting, James 1.8 would have to say something to connect insanity and sensual material. And I'll give him that James 1.8 could be interpreted to mean something about insanity. That makes sense. It talks about being double-minded and unstable. So, that makes sense. But there's no connection between the concept of insanity and the sensual material that Gothard is talking about. 
So does he believe that James 1, 8 references a different verse and concept? So like, you know, like when you cite a conclusion drawn from one article and then you don't cite the sources that that article cites, or maybe he's going backwards. Like he's saying that gratification without responsibility equals insanity, because clearly it does. If you're in the mind of a Bill Gothard, therefore that means insanity because unstable equals double-minded and double-minded is the biblical way of saying insanity i don't know that's that's what i'm getting here it's a weird word association game he's playing in the same point he does reference romans 128 which is a common clobber verse used against lgbt people but that verse reads and even as they did not like to retain god in their knowledge god gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which were not which are not convenient the thing is in the ifb that wouldn't be enough to use that scripture to prove your point what Bill Gothard is doing, like you said, it's a word, word association game. He's using any scripture that has the keywords that you're talking about to support his point. And that's not something mainstream IFB would be satisfied with. They would instead look for a verse that they can interpret to actually mean what they're saying, even if they had to twist the meanings of some of the words in English or dig into the Greek for a connotation. They are looking, the IFB is looking for something more specific. Bill Gothard is just playing word association, which is not normal in the IFB. So on one hand, he's being a little less word for word, word for word literal than the IFB usually would be. The other thing that he's doing weirdly with these scripture references is going way more conceptually literal than the IFB would. I would be really interested to know what your dad would think of these scripture interpretations. I would be interested too. I know my dad has a lot of disdain for Bill Gothard, um, which is fair. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. Honestly, <laughs> same. So I'm moving to point seven from that same section on consequences from sensual material because I want to show you the conceptual literalness that he is doing. So point seven, sensual material increases violent crime in the nation. The verse that's given is Leviticus 19.29 which reads, Do not prostitute thy daughter to cause her to be a whore, lest the land fall to whoredom and the land become full of wickedness. Okay, that seems pretty clear, though, right? That says, don't force your daughters into sex work. That is bad, and you should absolutely not do that. And that's exactly what the IFB interpretation would be. That's a very reasonable interpretation. If you force your children into sex work, the land will be wicked, and God will be pretty mad about that. Please don't do that under any circumstances. That's a very reasonable and justifiable law. I want to say coercing or forcing anybody into sex work is a terrible crime. Absolutely. I, I also agree with you and believe that God is displeased by anyone being forced or coerced into sex work. But Bill Gothard's interpretation of that same verse that you and I agree perfectly with the IFB interpretation of is Bill Gothard somehow interprets it as if you look at sensual, sensual material then there will be more violent crime in the United States or whatever nation you live in. And I personally think he's, when he says sensual material, I personally think he's not just talking about porn. I think he's also talking about art books with nude paintings or sculptures and PG romance novels and people kissing in movies. So how does he get there from from here to there? That's I don't know, I don't... but he literally says right here in the book that the consequences of sensual material are increased violent crime in the nation. So can I try to parse this out? Feel free, because I'm stumped. This is just such a reach. Yeah, this I mean, this really is a reach. I don't know. Um, 
the, the question basically we're looking at here just to how how does he get how he gets to look at central sensual material from prostitute thy daughter so maybe this is a situation if you'll just bear with me maybe this is a situation I say something and then you'll get a little freaked out about how much I picked up from funny. I love and hate those situations. But I'm going to say, uh, mm, so bear with me that it's got something to do with purity culture. Uh, I think that's a, a fairly good guess. And that fantasizing about somebody is mental adultery. Like we talked about earlier in that other verse, right? In, in the Matthew verse. Okay. I'm following. How in, in your story, like if you wore something that violated the dress code or that didn't violate the dress code, but failed to properly hide the parts of your body that caused men to sin. Basically, if you have big boobs and you don't just wear like a circus tent around essentially to cover them up, uh, it would be your fault, right? Right. So- if somebody is reading a romance novel and they picture themselves with somebody who they are not married to in the love scene in their mind, that is defiling that person's purity to the same level as it would if that person were a sex worker. Hmm. Therefore, by having such materials as romance novels or pornography or anything that could inspire lust in the home, you are as good as promoting the prostitution of your own daughters, thereby causing the land to become full of wit- of wickedness. Mm. So that is a long walk for a short drink of water, but that's where I think he's going. That's how I think he gets from point A to point Q. Yeah, that could you know. totally be where Bill Got Hard is coming from here. <laughs> yeah, and I tell you, he did from this one. <laughs> Did I do good? Do you think I did good? Yes, yes. I think that's as reasonable as we can expect to get. It's yeah. such a reach. I think that's as close to making it make sense as we're possibly going to get here. I feel like I'm Louise from Ant-Man. I, no. I, <laughs> I feel like that was a very reasonable explanation. The thing is, though, that the scripture verse doesn't say that it will increase violent crime. The scripture says that the land will become full of wickedness. So there's still an additional level of reach, even after that reach. Yeah. But on, on that note, I think we should go take up the offering. And then when we get back, we're going to keep slugging through and see what else we get out of this book. Yeah. So when we get back, we're going to do a guessing game on some of the weirder details of the show. Uh, so you guys can play along at home. And then we're going to talk about Michelle Duggar and Pantsgate. So uh, stay tuned for that. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, That group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We are back. And I don't know why I did it like that. While we were on break, um... Sadie said something funny to me and Sadie said, what page of this book are we on at this point? We're on like page 34. <laughs> That's how- um, Hang on. Let me find out. 377, not including the references. Jesus. So yeah. I am officially giving up the idea of going through this whole thing at once, which is fine. I'm just going to keep on doing what I've been doing and pull out what's interesting. And then whatever's left over, we'll come back to this at some point. Yeah. I mean, look, anytime we get into IBLP stuff, like it's a huge, like the audience loves it. They they just, you know, they eat, mm-hmm. you guys eat it up. You know, we love doing it because it's just so wacky and out there. But I honestly, I think it's just because Bill Gothard is such a weirdo. So like this book is is one that we will definitely come back to because we are absolutely not getting through this. I think it's also because it's all written down. Like the IFB has things and rules and that are just this specific, but our knowledge of them on the show is kind of dependent on my memory, which is not good because thanks PTSD. With the IBLP, we have it written down in front of us where in the IFB, you have to dig for it a little bit more. Yeah. And also if the IFB has rules and stuff a lot of times you have to listen to sermons to get them and we don't want to listen to like like hours and hours and hours of ifb sermons to just like pull out like a a five minute clip yeah my time is so limited that is not what i really want to use it on but for anybody following along at home we're gonna see if we can maybe get through to spiritual gifts we'll we'll see where we end up today because we still have to talk about um the hoopla over michelle duggar maybe wearing pants Okay, yeah, we'll get to that later. We'll get we we promise we'll get to that later. But we have to do an etiquette an etiquette quiz first. Oh god. <laughs> okay. How much of this stuff in this etiquette quiz is going to be stuff that I missed out on because I didn't attend finishing school? Uh, I guess we're going to have to find out. I didn't attend finishing school either. My mother did, <laughs> and she passed on a lot of stuff to me. My brother did cotillion, so he might more, know more of this than I do. But you pick up a fair bit of etiquette. Of, I can't say this right today. Etiquette. I can't. I, you pick up a fair bit of etiquette training just being Southern and reading your mom's and grandma's etiquette books that were always lying around the house. Okay. Diana so. knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How are we going to grade this? That's important. Um, are we going to do marks out of 10, A, B, C, D, F, uh, or can I just take this course pass fail? Okay. Let's do pass fail. Yes. I have 44 questions from this advanced seminar book. How many questions do you want to do? 
Okay, let's do five. Okay. I feel like five is a good number. Okay. It's going to be really hard to choose the questions, but <laughs> let's do let's do five, and then if you get three out of five, you pass. Okay. Okay. Ready to start? Let's start off with the easy one. Okay. Okay. Uh, number number one. When a husband kisses his wife in public when it is raining, does he have to remove his hat? This is a strong assumption that he is wearing a hat. Okay, I just want to put that out there. But then again, as as a, a bald man, uh, anytime I go outside now, usually I'm wearing a hat because my head gets cold. I found out that's a thing. Your head gets cold. So I'm going to say that it depends on the kind of hat. It depends on the height difference between the husband and the wife. So if I am wearing a baseball cap and my wife is close to my height or is wearing exceptionally tall heels, there is a very real chance that I bump the brim of my cap on her forehead. So in this situation, I would say, yes, remove the hat or at least turn it backwards or sideways. So you're going for this is an answer of convenience. Yes, an answer of convenience. The greatest American value is convenience. At some point, I will give that whole spiel, but not right now. So your answer is yes. Yes, yeah, sure. Okay. Why not? Uh, answer for number one, yes, is correct. So you have to remove your hat, like no matter what. Yes. A man kissing his wife on the street in greeting or farewell only should always remove his hat no matter what the weather. Wait, so does that mean that if I'm not in greeting or farewell, that I am not allowed to kiss my wife in public? That's correct. PDA is gross. I am like, I am, <laughs> I feel like PDA should be kept to a reasonable level. Yeah, I don't. Okay, you know what? You're right. We shouldn't make like specific rules about. I, I think, you know, my, what, my, my Southern parents always told me about manners and etiquette is that it is always the, it is always the height of being proper to make other people feel comfortable. So you don't want to do anything that would make others feel uncomfortable. And that's that's the whole thing. I, that's one thing I can absolutely get behind. Okay, ready for your next question? Yes. Okay, okay next question. Actually, I got that one right. You got that one right. So number two, and this this one should be even easier. If a fellow is walking down the sidewalk with a girl, on which side should he be? Oh, this is one that, uh, you know, we have been walking down the street together and I have demonstrated my knowledge of this concept to you that the man should be on the side of the street so that he can use his body to shield the woman from any splashing or debris or oncoming traffic. Unless, of course, this etiquette is from the 19th century or earlier, in which case he should be on the inside to shield the lady from refuse or night soil being hurled from windows in the morning. This is correct. I figured you'd get this one. Uh, there are also some other softballs in here, like when you're introducing two people to each other, who do you introduce first? Like if you're introducing a friend to your parents, do you say, Jim Bob, this is my mom and dad? Or do you say, mom and dad, this is Jim Bob? A of all, not friends with Jim Bob. Just want to make sure that's known. I'm not introducing him to my family. But I assume that it's mom and dad, this is Jim Bob. Because I like to believe that my parents have a higher social standing than Jim Bob. Right. You present the person who is more important or has higher social standing or is older. Um, you pre Sorry, I did that wrong. My parents are definitely uh, more important than Jim Bob. 
Yeah, you present you, the person with lower social standing to the person with higher social standing. And there's there's a whole set of rules that help you determine which person is which. But the correct thing to do if you're introducing a friend to your parents, it would be, Mom and Dad, this is Jim Bob. Jim Bob, these are my parents, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. So I had to include this next one because it is just so highly specific and the wording cracked me up. So number, th- so you've gotten the first two right. Number three, if you are eating a jelly sandwich and some of the jelly dribbles onto your tie, what should you do? Lift your tie and lick it off, turn the tie around, or begin a scraping operation? Okay, so none of these options sound good at all to me. I can't imagine, I'm trying to imagine a situation in which I'm eating a PB&J and wearing a tie. I don't really think of PB&J as Thai food. <laughs> now, personally... I would do none of these things. Scraping operation. I do not want anything to do with scraping to have anything to do with any of my ties. But personally, I would get a napkin and try to wipe it off. You know, excuse myself and and go and, and clean my tie off with like a napkin or something. And if it won't come out, then you take the tie off and take it to the dry cleaners at the next possible opportunity to make sure that it doesn't stain. I personally cannot imagine that any of these answers are the correct answer, but I also cannot imagine that the one that Bill Gothard describes as correct is the scraping operation. So as far as your PB&J and a tie qualms, I think this is maybe like a formal high tea situation. Uh, Oh, a high tea? (laughs) That's a very old joke. (laughs) Should we explain that for new listeners? No, okay. they'll have to go back and get it. <laughs> so, it, but like, I think maybe at a at fancy tea places, they might serve sandwiches that are just bread and jelly or like bread, butter and jelly. I think, sorry, I, I feel like that's when you would be eating a jelly sandwich in a tie. People eat just like bread and jelly. Yeah, like at a formal thing. That's just bread and sugar. That's empty carbohydrates. What? This is like just white bread, not wheat. So there, there's no dietary fiber and no protein. Why would you eat that? Number one, it's delicious. But number two, have you ever been to a formal tea? It's not like it's not about nutrition. It's about being fancy. No, I'm from Oregon. Okay, I know like two British people, and they're like the they're they're not like the formal tea type British people. They're like the punch up at a football match type of British people. You know what I'm saying? Right. In Oregon, yeah. In Oregon, formal tea is when you do ayahuasca on top of a mountain. <laughs> In Oregon. Yeah, formal tea is in an overgrown house with a lady who uses crystals to predict the weather. (laughs) So the answer for what to do if you get jelly on your tie, take a knife or fork, scoop up the substance and place it at the side of your plate. Then dip your napkin into your water glass and rub the spot lightly. Do it as inconspicuously as possible. So I was right, except for the part about excusing myself and going to the bathroom. So I'll give you half credit. For that one. Half credit. Because I said scraping operation is... Because he says scraping operation. And then that's what he tells you to do, actually, is scrape it off with a knife or fork. I feel like Bill Gothard is just the kind of guy who's like, oh boy, I spilled some jelly on my tie. Better begin the scraping operation. (laughs) Is Bill Gothard (laughs) Professor Frank from The Simpsons? Yeah. Oh, God. Such a weirdo. So let's move on to question number four. Let's do it. This one's a real a real sticky wicket for the fundy young man. When a fellow goes out to a restaurant with a girl and the girl insists on picking up the tab, what should the fellow do? So look, 
Just going to put this out there. I will accept a free meal in almost any situation. If I'm on it, so like if I'm on a date and she insists on paying, that that means the date went really well. Like if if she wants to split, then maybe that's not so good. If she lets me pay, then that's fine. But I don't think that that's probably the answer that Billy the Goth is looking for. Uh, he is going to say that under no circumstance should you let the lady pay. And if you must, uh, you must resort to fisticuffs with the waiter to be sure that not a penny from her wallet ends up in the restaurant's coffers, because that is a matter of honor and chivalry. So here's the answer for that one. And I had to include this one just because the answer is so awful. Oh, God. So here, here's the answer. Accept it as graciously as possible. It would have been better for the girl to have arranged in advance with the restaurant the payment of the bill. Ar- arranged in advance? So if you're, like if you're a person with two X chromosomes and you want to pay the bill, it is improper for your date to see money going from your hands to the hands of the restaurant Heaven forbid a sweet little woman be associated with such a thing as filthy lucre. You must call the restaurant ahead of time and arrange to pay the bill so that your date does not have to witness such impropriety. Wow. I am gripping this book so hard my knuckles are turning white. That's nuts. That's (laughs) beyond like, so if she, she would have had to call in advance and they, and like give them her credit card number over the phone. I guess. Essential. Yeah, give them the and say so that when the waiter comes up and you be like, "Oh, can I get the bill?" He can be like, "Oh, the bill has already been taken care of." Well, this isn't this is in 1986, so I don't know if if like consumer if I don't know if your average young lady who was going out on dates would have had a credit card. Well, if she's reading etiquette manuals and she's probably fairly highfalutin. I don't. Maybe? I, don't I don't know. know. I don't How? think everybody had credit cards in the 80s. Yeah, I don't know. I have to ask mm. my parents. So anyway, I just I just found this I found this answer extremely offensive. So many of these things, it's just like extremely inconvenient, just like to avoid the Mm -hmm. image of impropriety. Right. And there there are several other things in this book, like about uh, if you are a man and you want to pay for a lady's taxi ride from wherever you are to wherever she's going, but you're not going in the cab with her. How do you do that? And the answer is you give money directly to the cab driver. You don't pass that money through her hands. There's so much that's just like, don't ever let a woman touch money. And that just rubs me the wrong way or real bad. So I got one more question for you. I don't know if we count number four, right or wrong. Number four. Okay. I'm going to say, let's, so can, can I get half credit on that? Because I said, I, my idea was you don't let the woman. Yeah. But you also like- said you'd accept a meal. So that is half credit. I that's me personally. I'm not saying that that's like the the correct like I will personally accept a free meal from anyone in any situation not in any situation but in many situations. Why aren't you going to Kent Hovind's uh free steak and debate an atheist dinner then? Because I'm not an atheist. Uh right, right, right. Okay, well, let's go on to the last question. Let's see how you do on that one. <laughs> okay, what's my score so far? I've got You got 3 two- you got 3 out of 4 because you have two correct and two half credit. Okay, so this is this is for all the marbles. Mm-hmm. So how should a girl on a date order her meal in a restaurant? Give her order to her date or give it directly to the waitress? They always say waitress. They assume it's waitress. There's never like a waiter. Okay, so that's that's interesting. Just wanted to point that out there. I think this is a trick question. 
I think that in the IBLP, the man gets to choose what the woman orders. Okay, so if you go to the restaurant, you look at the menu and you ask what the waiter recommends or waitress, and then you order for your date what sounds good regardless of what she wants. Uh, You are a man. You know better than the lady. Uh, and if she is going to build a life with you, she must be willing to accept your headship, which means that you get to decide what she eats. You're close. Close. <clears throat> so your answer for question number five, a woman should tell her escort who then gives the order with his own to the waitress. That's better than I assumed it was. This, I think I. this is like this is old fashioned. This is this is like normal old fashioned etiquette, which, again, I, I find insulting, but it's not IBLP specific anyway. So I'm, I'm going to give you a pass on that section because you got you got two of them absolutely right and then three of them mostly right. I got like a 70. Yeah, okay. Right? Is is that math right? So I got f- 40% and then, yeah, so I got 70%. C minus. All right, baby. Okay. There we go. That's the number I want to see. C minus. <laughs> C's make weird, fundy etiquette degrees. <laughs> Ah, all right. So general thoughts on the etiquette section of the book? Misogyny. Big yikes. (laughs) Okay, obviously. But like beyond that. (laughs) It's all just very um, old fashioned and I don't see it being helpful in the real world. So would people actually insist on going by all these rules? Because like so many of these, they're so specific. I can't imagine having like this is all such specific information having to have that in my head what else would i not have room for because i was remembering all of these etiquette rules i think you'd have to eat the formula one knowledge oh man now you'll remember heather talking about having etiquette lessons when she was at the iblp training center right when she had the um she she had the etiquette fake date with cargo shorts. Right. And then uh, cargo jorts, uh, zip off <laughs> pants. Yeah, that guy. Yes. But then she got in trouble, I think, for shaking his hand at the end of the meal. Ooh, yeah. too slutty. Yeah. I mean, we all know how Heather is. The other weird thing I noticed about these rules, though, is did you notice how many of them were about dating? Yes. Oh, yes. Of course. Like, if you're focused on your own etiquette and rules and such, you're going to be so anxious that you're not going to be able to connect with your date on an emotional level, right? Like you're not going to be able to pay attention to anything that they're saying. Yes, that. But also I was going to point out that the IBLP doesn't really recommend dating. They recommend courtship. And some of the questions I didn't get to are about things like going to restaurants together, being in cabs together, a lot of things that just wouldn't be allowed under the IBLP rules to begin with. So I was really perplexed by that. And I have to wonder if this printing of the book wasn't before the IBLP took such a hard stance on courtship. Well, when did I Kissed Dating Goodbye come out? Oof. I'm going to take a wild stab at it and say around 2000. Because mm-hmm. I know that Joshua Harris was, I know that he's significantly older than me, but I don't think the book came out before I was born. They, they were doing courtships before that book came out. Yeah, well, lots of people were. My take on this etiquette section, I think, and and you kind of alluded to this before, that a lot of this is just like Southern, like old fashioned etiquette i think he probably plagiarized this from somewhere like he found some like rare finishing school rule book from 19 
26 called like directions for debutantes <laughs> or you know something like and he just printed it word for word it does have a disclaimer at the end it says answers based on various etiquette books various and based means lifted directly from that you got to read between the lines there i, I think that's a fair <laughs> estimation <laughs> So now that we've got the etiquette quiz out of the way, I want to circle back to a couple observations that I have about the style of this book, because we're about to move on to a new section, and I want to get these things out of the way first. Cool, 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 cool. So first, I've been noticing that Gothard is using a very familiar Hiles-esque tactic, and that is printing stories from people who have been helped by his work in highly implausible ways with no name and no way to prove them. So like Paul Sand. Yes. Oh. So there's this story on page 23 about a dad who heard from his IBLP friends that he should be reading the Bible out loud to his kids, but he didn't think that his kids would be willing to sit and listen. Another dad recommended that he sit the kids down and let them color or draw while he read the Bible. This is not the implausible part. This part tracks that his kids were able to sit and listen to him read the Bible better when they were coloring. The part that I don't believe is that his kids kept asking him to read more and more, and he ended up reading the Bible to them for over an hour. I call BS on kids sitting Mm. and coloring for an hour. I don't. I mean, when I was a kid, I would just like sit down and draw pictures of stuff for like hours and hours and hours at a time. I loved it. What I find implausible is that, because like when my parents would read stories out loud to us when we were kids, they'd get tired of reading for like, if they had to read for that long, they'd get tired of it. And then their voice would get tired or they'd tell us that it was time to go to bed. Hmm. That's what I find implausible. My dad would be like, no, my voice is worn. <laughs> I, like, I would have loved to have my dad read to me for an hour as a kid. And I'm sure that he did sometimes. But my dad wasn't reading an hour's worth of Genesis. He was reading mostly Dr. Seuss books. He was doing all the voices, being very animated. I was the most funny kid in existence. And I don't think even I would have been happy about sitting through an hour of Genesis. Genesis is interesting. It could have been, you know what would be the worst though? Reading your kid the book of numbers. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was expected to read that as a child. Oh, man. Oof rough stuff i mean i've i've read i've read all the way through the book of numbers quite a few times it's not interesting i'll i'll just say it right there it's not it's it's not a a page turner well you know the fundies go in there and do like numerology stuff and that does make it oh, a lot more interesting of course they do like oh see there were 14 generations from adam to somebody melchizedek or david or something and then there were 14 generations from that guy to this other guy and then there were 14 generations from that guy to jesus and that means something and there's gonna be 14 generations from jesus to the antichrist that means the rapture is coming in 2023 better get ready (laughs) every time you bring up that the bible code thing it's just like (sighs) There are two more stories I want to address from Bill Gothard on page 29. It's in the section called The Exciting Potential of Pre-Birth Training. Like Lamaze class? No, pre-birth training for your children. (laughs) You got to train your children before they're even born. So is that the thing where you put the headphones on your belly and play Mozart so your baby will be smart? Yes, but make it culty. Oh, Oh, so you're playing the HAC tour tapes, you know, like they're building him a mansion on Hallelujah Street. <laughs> I don't know why you are so hung up on the mansion on Hallelujah Street. <laughs> it's such a funny lyric. 
Um, little children oh no. are falling into a burning hell. Man, I will, that song slaps. I don't even care. Like I will it, have all of you know <laughs> that now every time I every time I get on the call to record a podcast, I put on my headphones and I hear little children are falling into a burning hell. Sung by me. <laughs> or or sometimes it's like genuine or something else. But usually it's one genuine. of those two things. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna talk about genuine in a couple weeks on the Patreon. It's gonna be great. Oh right, we are. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> But, but no, it's mostly like uh, so what they're recommending for pre-birth training is mostly just reading your baby the Bible. I think the mansion on Hallelujah Street and the children falling into a burning hell are a little too stimulating for the IBLP. <laughs> so one story is about um, I want to I want to tell you about this story because I want to call BS on it in a very specific way. Uh, one story is about a dad who read a chapter of Proverbs to his son in utero every day. The baby had to go to NICU after he was born. And the dad talks about how he would talk to his baby when he was in the NICU and it would calm the baby down and help him rest. This part makes sense. This is very normal and good on the dad. NICU is natal ICU, right? Neonatal ICU. Yeah, newborn. Oh, okay. This makes sense. Good on the dad for talking to the baby before it's born. Good on the dad for visiting his kid in NICU and being a present involved dad for that part of his kid's life. The part that I'm calling bull on is, and I'm quoting, the nurses noticed his unusual responses to my voice and frequently commented on it. That's mm. the part I don't buy. I think whether the non-birthing parent read the kid the Bible or Shakespeare or comic books or recipe books the kid would have responded to his voice. It's not unusual for a baby to respond to a voice that they know. It's not unusual for a little baby in the NICU to do better when a caregiver or a parent is there with them. And I don't think it's unusual enough for the nurses to comment on it. Yeah, it's it's totally fine to read to your kid before they're born, but this is not unusual or surprising. And Gothard is implying that this miracle happened because the guy read his kid the bible and i don't think that's accurate this is the iblp though so like they demonize the scientific method they think the scientific method is evil scientific method causes suicide yeah this we're hearing this and we're like this is ridiculous also gothard has no kids so he doesn't understand that this is just what happens when there is a little baby yeah no, I, if I talk to Chuck, she just gives me weird eyebrow looks. Yeah, but she she recognizes your voice, though, because even though she hasn't spent a lot of time with you in person, she spent all those months before and after she was born hearing your voice through my headphones when we recorded. Yeah, but that's also true with your cat. Yeah, but you met <laughs> Harry for the first time and he came right over and sniffed at you and got in your guitar case and hung out with you because he knew who you were because he'd heard your voice so much. But Bill Gothard thinks that all of this is is very unusual and miraculous. He does not directly state, but he does imply that it's because it was the Bible that the dad was reading. The other story is about a baby whose parents played soothing Christian music during labor and birth. Then later, when they went home, their baby calmed down when they played the same soothing Christian music. And now the baby is a little kid who talks about wanting other people to hear good Christian music. Once again. Mm. Most babies enjoy hearing music. Most babies will calm down for soothing, quiet music that's familiar to them. This is not surprising. Also, a baby that has been raised from birth with these ideas about Christian music is going to talk about wanting other people to hear the good music about God. 
I was that baby at one point in my life. This is not surprising. Does this mean that when Chuck grows up, she's going to be calmed down by speed metal? I would certainly assume so. She is extremely into Kiss. Um, (laughs) So Chuck will get up and dance when she hears music that she likes, which is so cute. I've seen videos, man. Oh, my gosh. It's amazing. Um, She's shown a definite preference for some of her dad's favorite bands. So Kiss and Metallica really get her going. I'm trying to remember what she was dancing to last night. It was something. Oh, the Ramones is what had her going last night. Phenomenal taste already. Jonathan has been trying real hard to get her into Slipknot. Uh, She hasn't really gone for it to the level of Kiss and Metallica yet, but we'll see. Yeah, Slipknot's definitely a bit of an acquired taste. Like I said, like when we did the Paul Simon Graceland episode, I like I probably heard the album Graceland a thousand times before I could walk. I still love that record. Like if you look at my Spotify top five for 2021, like my top five songs were just the first five songs on Graceland by Paul Simon. <laughs> I um I really like Slipknot for about three songs, and that's all I have the tolerance for. Yeah, it's a bit much. Like I, I love it for three songs, and then I'm like, please turn this off. I also can't listen to it while I'm eating. Why is that? I don't know. It's something about the the tone makes me feel nauseated. It's a bit abrasive, isn't it? Well, they use Slipknot uses brown notes in their music. There's one other just random thing that I wanted to make sure that we talk about, and that's something that I noticed when I first looked through the wisdom booklets. It's been back several months ago, but I don't think we've talked about this on the show yet. Go for it. What is it? So this is such an IBLP specific thing. And once you notice it, you see it everywhere. But every section is introduced with a question and there are just random questions everywhere. Rhetorical questions in every paragraph. That sounds Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) It's annoying. No offense. None take. (laughs) I know it's a cultural quirk. Do do these rhetorical, do they have like an alluded answer or are they just like rhetorical? Uh, do I know what rhetorical means? <laughs> Usually the text just goes ahead and answers them, but it's also very obvious where they're going even before the text answers them. I can read you some examples if that would help. So from page 20, what is the political goal of humanism? The political goal of religious humanism is a one world government controlled by man, not God. That is a very bold statement. Does he have evidence to back up this claim? Yes, actually, that's paraphrased from the Humanist Manifesto, which I can link in the sources for this episode. What's the Humanist Manifesto? I have never heard of such a document. So I cited earlier the definition of humanism from the American Humanist Humanist Organization. They contributed to the Humanist Manifesto. The original was written in the 1930s, and then an updated one was released in the 1970s. Actually, is this actually what it says in the document, or is this just Bill Gothard, Gothard saying what he thinks is in the document, like with all those Supreme Court cases? Here, I'll, I'll give you, I can give you a quote from the Humanist Manifesto. Go for it. So the one from the 1970s is the one I'm reading because that would have been like there. There's been a there's been a third one at this point, but this is from the second one because this is what Gothard would have had access to in 1980 five or six when this book was being written. Uh, We have reached a turning point in human history where the best option is to transcend the limits of national sovereignty and to move toward the building of a world community in which all sectors of the human family can participate. Thus, we look to the development of a system of world law and a world order based on transnational federal government. Okay, so that's actually real. Yeah. So Bill Gothard is characterizing it how he wants to, but I wouldn't say that he's lying or even really twisting the truth on this one. The worst I can accuse him here is 
cherry picking. There's plenty in that document about rejecting religion in favor of shared human moral values as well. So some other examples of rhetorical questions. What if the command of father violates scripture? What if mother fails to give the light of her laws? How should father and mother work together in giving light? Hmm. I, I don't have a specific reason that I can say this is bad. I'm just saying that it very much annoys me to have every section start with a question because this could have been so easily rewritten and been so much clearer. Like how I would have rewritten those questions would have, would be when the command of father violates scripture. If the mother does not give the light of her laws, how parents can work together in giving light. Doesn't that sound like it, it helps you find the sections more easily. It sounds so much better. I just think that reading endless stupid questions from Bill Gothard is really annoying. Asking questions and then answering the questions with another question. Right. It's wasted print. <laughs> like it's wasted ink and paper. There's just there's no reason to do that. And then the last one that just really annoyed me and made me go back and look up all the other ones. An entire section on hospitality starts with a rhetorical question. The question is, whom did God call a great woman because of her hospitality? It goes into three whole pages on the Shunammite woman who is hospitable to Elijah. This section is full of just awful things, but the title is what caught my attention before all of that. It's a weird title. Why? Why, Bill? Why could this not be titled A Scriptural Example of Hospitality? It's not a fucking mystery. Starting this with a question does not make it more interesting. Was he just trying to show off that he can properly use the word whom? Is that what this was about? A hot take. I think that the real answer is that Bill Gothard invented clickbait. Oh. So th this is like the cult manual equivalent of, here's how much I paid for the ugliest car ever made. Or who was the richest man of all time? Or here's why America doesn't have bullet trains. Those are just like a few of the titles of the videos that pop up in my YouTube recommendations, you know? But like when you read those like you want to know the answer to those right yeah I, I, I think maybe that's what bill gothard is very poorly trying to do here i do want to dig into this section quickly though because there is some sneaky shit for us in here oh um, i'd be surprised if there wasn't so according to the book the shunammite woman quote offers counsel to any wife who feels that her husband is incompatible in areas that are important to her happiness I'm sure you caught that, but this woman is supposed to be an example to women who are dissatisfied with their husbands. So it, incompatible with areas that are important to her happiness. I'm finding it extremely difficult to not make a clitoris joke here. I'm just going to allow our audience to make their own. But it, Oh, it's a, can... it's a build your own joke segment. <laughs> yeah, That's build your own <laughs> I, I... It's a DIY. Uh, pause the podcast for 15 minutes, write a joke, and then come back. Yeah, send it to me on Instagram, and then I will re-edit the episode with the best one. <laughs> I don't know. Uh. So in the IBLP, your husband is supposed to bring you happiness and provide for you. But if he doesn't in any way, it's an opportunity from God. And if you're not satisfied with what you have, that's on you, not on your husband. I think that being a man in the IBLP seems like a sweet deal. I mean, yeah, I can't help but agree <laughs> with that. Um, so the Shunammite woman, she had a husband who was much older than her, and he was a busy man and they had no children. Gothard says, quote, 
What has God withheld from you or me, or what has he taken away from us that we might be more alert to the needs of others? Instead of using this freedom, have we filled it with pets or possessions that require constant care and absorb our affections? I have no idea what that means. Uh, If you don't have something that you want, God wants you to use that time to help other people. Don't make yourself happy with the extra time that you gain from not having something you want. Just another quote from Gothard here. Uh, Many would say to the Shunammite woman, your marriage is a mismatch. You have so little in common. But what others would look at as a prison, God looks at as a classroom. What others would look at as a prison, God looks at as a classroom. Well, I hope Josh Duggar remembers that while he's in a classroom for hopefully 10 to 20 years. Uh, Maybe in prison he'll get the education that he was denied as a child. Uh, hopefully, yeah. Can you imagine Josh Duggar coming out of prison with a master's degree? Uh, I don't want to think about Josh Duggar coming out of prison. So, right, that's um, that's the yeah. part of that that's no, no good. <sighs> but speaking of the Duggars... I think we've 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 done enough on the on on this IBLP uh, advanced seminar. I think that because earlier in the episode we promised that we would talk about this, and since this is an IBLP themed episode, we figured it would be apropos because a few days ago we had a huge bombshell in the Duggarverse. Yeah. So I thought when I started going through this book and like fact checking claims for this episode, I thought we'd just get through as much of the book as we could. But between then and the day that we're recording, there was a picture posted by the sun. It made its way to Reddit. And in this picture, it really, really, really looks like Michelle Duggar is wearing pants. I should note for our British listeners, (laughs) I want to make it clear we mean trousers. I don't want any of you to have to live with any defrauding images in your mind. (laughs) But we're going to say pants because we're American, but we mean trousers. So I think first we need to address, is she actually wearing pants or is it a trick of the light? So I have seen this picture and there was absolutely a divided leg. So before anyone says, oh, she was wearing a skirt over the pants, it is clear that this was one piece of fabric. She was clearly wearing a skirt over leggings in other pictures from the same day. And it, I, I have I have waffled back and forth on this like four times since I posted the picture in our Facebook group. I keep looking back at the picture and like zooming in, zooming out, squinting. I, I just I really think she took the skirt off at some point during the day. And like one picture was taken when she was just wearing the leggings and then she put the skirt back on. Maybe. Was it a skirt or was it like a sweater tied around her waist? No, that would have caused bulk at her waist. I think she was wearing a skirt over her leggings for the earlier part of the day when they went to church, but then possibly took that off once she was done with church. Is that not allowed? Like the sweater, the sweater, like, do you have to tie it around your neck like you're the bully in an 80s after school special? I don't remember a sweater around the waist not being allowed for me growing up. Um, I was encouraged to wear it around my shoulders because the people dressing me were from the 80s. Um, Mm. But I think for the IBLP, that would be an eye trap to have it around your waist. But that's kind of what I'm trying to get to here. Even if she was wearing a skirt in that one picture over leggings and the light made it look like she was wearing pants, still, by IBLP rules, the skirt was definitely too tight. Having the leggings come down below the hem of her skirt is also not technically allowed by the IBLP rules. So I'm looking at this picture now. Are these are are these leggings? Because these look like low key too loose to be leggings. Like they, it looks like they have pockets in them. 
you can see that she so she's not wearing jeans or anything but it's like what it's like 50 percent between like a legging and and pants so i don't know what that's called it's like a capri length pant made out of i don't know what material it's like halfway down her calves but it's like a very like midwestern mom look i think it's know? yeah it's, it's what you said it's like a casual jersey or athletic type material capris like very loose legging style uh, pont pants i think that's what they're called like a like a audrey hepburn style pants i was not aware that audrey hepburn had her own style of pants yeah definitely look up pont pants i don't know if i'm saying that right because i've never heard it out loud i've only read it but it's p-o-n-t-e google that and you'll see what i mean oh okay okay okay. i've seen these okay i just never knew what to call them yeah they're like leggings but they're twice as thick so they hang more like regular pants But regardless of whether she's actually wearing pants out and about or not, my overall point here is that the rules are being fudged, if not straight up broken. And that's actually what I want to talk about here. That's the meat of this for me. We've all seen Jill and Ginger, the breakaway Duggar daughters, wearing pants over the past few years, and this isn't really news. Even over the last year, we've seen Jana's friend Laura wearing pants at the Duggar house, and now, of course, Jana is regularly pictured in pants. I think even Jessa, who seems to be one of the grown Duggar children who is sticking closest to the rules, I think even Jessa has been seen in pants at some point. Ginger is wearing pants in this photo. So is Jana, actually. Everybody's ignoring that because they're so focused on Michelle. But Jana is too. Also, Ginger, I have to admit, Ginger looks cute. This is a good outfit. Very stylish. I really like Ginger's new style. A lot of her looks are something that I would wear. It's a real shame that her husband has such shitty beliefs because I have no reason to think that Ginger's beliefs are any less even her husband's. I really want to be a fan of her. Like, I thought she was cute way back when I was a teenager, and I didn't know the difference between thinking someone was cute and just like, I guess I just really like her style. Like, (laughs) I I still want them, like Ginger and Jeremy, to totally break away from the misogyny and homophobia of John Piper and his world, because I really want to just be a fan of theirs. And I can't until they're less but I really want to. I well, She's wearing animal print in this photo. I don't think I've ever seen you wear animal print anything. Like it's, if you took out the animal print top and replaced it with like some like plaid or like flint or like a band t-shirt, then this is like your look. She's got Doc Martens and everything. Yeah, I don't wear animal print. I think it's because it was huge in the fundy world when I was at Hiles Anderson. I don't I don't know why. I think that's why. That tracks. Because HAC is very stuck in the 80s. Animal print is a very 80s look. And your aesthetic is much more early 80s punk scene or like 90s grunge scene than it is like a, a, a late 80s, like a glam rock or like glam metal or, you know, like a well, that kind of look. Well, thank you for recognizing that. I pretty much want to dress exactly like 1998 to 1990 Axl Rose at all times. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good aesthetic. Yeah, Axl Rose today still dresses like 1988 to 1990 Axl Rose. Uh, yeah. Except he wears shirts more of the time. Yeah, did you did you saw like what what he wears on tour? And can you tell me that you haven't seen me in that exact same outfit, but with docks instead of cowboy boots? It's true. Uh, I was in the front row. It's a great time. I think we have the same plaid shirts. Okay. Uh, I also I also want a version of his 80s lady tattoo. Very cool. Yeah. But that's beside the point, because what I actually want to talk about is what does it mean that the Duggars suddenly seem to be relaxing their dress code rules? What does it mean 
that Duggar's sons are wearing floral shirts and shorts? What does it mean that Jeremiah and Hannah Wisman front hugged at their proposal? Front hugged. Scandal. <laughs> like, what does it mean that Claire Duggar has even worn pants at the Big Sandy IBLP meeting? So I have seen a few theories about this. And I know, like, for a lot of people who are listening to this, they're just like, why, why are you guys talking about this? Because putting on pants, that's a big thing for when you're getting out of fundamentalism. If you're ex-fundy, you know this. Like, the day that you leave the house in pants, for the first, that's like a, a huge deal. So theory A uh, that I've heard is that the Duggars image is as we know, pretty much in the toilet right now, considering Josh just got convicted of pedophilia, going to spend the next however many years of his life in jail, in prison. Jim Bob possibly committed perjury and then got demolished in the Arkansas State Special Election Senate primary. Their show, all the spinoffs from their show, everything's been canceled. People in Arkansas really don't seem to like them. They're having to try to appear more liberal in order to change the narrative surrounding their brand. So that's theory A. Theory two is that Michelle has finally seen her and Jim Bob's lifestyle has been harmful to their family. And so she has gone off wearing pants to visit one of the more liberal daughters to ask advice on how to transition to a less authoritarian and patriarchal lifestyle. I, I wished it were that theory. I don't think it's that theory, but but, but that sounds so nice. Yeah. What, well, what do you want? What's your take? Okay. I, I want to pitch my like wild conspiracy theory, and then I'll, th- I'll tell you what I actually think. Ooh, I love a good okay, conspiracy okay. theory. So here's my wild headcanon conspiracy theory that I am begging nobody to take seriously. Please do, please do not take this seriously. Okay. So we know that Ginger might be the closest to her mother out of all of the grown-up daughters. We know that they're very close. I think maybe Michelle has confided in Ginger about having doubts about the not wearing pants thing. Maybe she's asked Ginger for fashion advice. Like, I'm not saying that I do want to wear pants, but... If I were going to, what would you suggest that I buy? Is that your Michelle voice? (laughs) It's a pretty good Michelle voice, if I do say so myself. I have never seen an episode of 19 Kids and Counting. I'm just going to admit that right now. We have to do that. We absolutely have to make you do that. People who are listening to this show are just like, what? How are you on? I'm just like, I... So, so, so what happened in my crazy theory, yeah. though? Michelle left the house in a skirt in the morning, but sometime during the day, Ginger was able to talk her into, like, well, why don't you just wear those leggings that you're wearing under the skirt and just walk around the block once and see how it feels? Just trying to, like, ease her into it. Mm. But Ginger knew that the paparazzi were going to be there because we theorize, which is almost certainly true that Ginger and Jeremy called the paparazzi on themselves to keep themselves relevant. So Ginger masterminded this whole thing and set it up because she thought if she could get her mom pictured in pants one time, Michelle would feel like, oh, well, the cat's out of the bag. I might as well just keep wearing them if I want to. Boom. Crazy conspiracy theory. That is a conspiracy theory. Like, the get your tinfoil hats on, people. Uh, that's what's really going on here. <laughs> your tinfoil pants. Yeah, tinfoil pants. That sounds really uncomfortable. <laughs> so the style of pants that Michelle was wearing 
it didn't just want to say Michelle wasn't dressed like inappropriately for somebody of her age, somebody of her style. Like she just looks like a conservative Midwestern mom. Like if you didn't know who these people were from TV, you probably wouldn't look twice at them. The one thing that maybe gives credence to your theory is that if Ginger called the paps, then you know, she made sure that if she was going to be seen, then she was dressed very well and had all her makeup and all her hair done properly. I think Ginger has a little smirk in that picture. Ginger? I mean, is Michelle that Michelle is like smiling to the kid. She's full on cheesing into the camera, teeth and everything. I think it's the same situation for Michelle as Justin's trial thumbs up picture. Oh. Yeah, that's that's what I see. I, I think it's just muscle memory. Like you see a camera and you got to look super happy. Mm. But on to my actual observations on this. I think what we're seeing here is actually pretty common in fundamentalism. The generational slip. As much as fundies scream and yell about never changing standards, they inevitably change standards. I, I particularly see this a lot in wedding dresses. The most IFB, like sold out, dressed by the rules all the time girls will have wedding dresses that are completely out of the IFB rules. I knew a girl who was super IFB, got married at First Baptist Church of Hammond, had a wedding dress that was beautiful but fully conformed to the church's standards. Then when her wedding pictures came out, though, it turns out that the top of her dress was convertible and there was like a little cape Mm. jacket part of it that came off and it was a strapless dress. Now, I'm not trying to shame her for showing her shoulders. She looked beautiful and it was completely appropriate as a non-IFB wedding dress. And she is one of the least toxic fundies that I know for what it's worth. But she's gone right back after her one day of strapless dress collarbone freedom to the IFB rolls. And But I think that that's a generational slip because I bet that her children, if they get married in the IFB church, I bet her children's dresses will be one step further than hers were. And then if her grandchildren get married in the IFB church, they'll all be wearing strapless wedding dresses if that's what's still in style at the time. And it, it slips very slowly over the generations and a lot of times wedding dresses and formal wear are where it starts. Man, I just gave an IFB preacher something to yell about in a sermon if he's listening. <laughs> Yeah, the, the generations are slow. If the, you let your wife wear one of these strapless gowns like a harlot, then she is not your wife. She is being, uh, what are we talking about earlier? Men are going to be fantasizing about her in their mind and then defiling her. Yeah, because of her, her, her slutty, slutty collarbones. But what bugs me about the Duggars doing this It's that when the standards slip a tiny bit at a time, generation by generation, eventually these people get to wear the jeans without going through the deconstruction that the rest of us went through. It's like slowly wiggling out a Jenga block so that you don't knock the whole tower down. The rest of us, if we wanted to pull that block of wearing jeans out, we had to knock the tower down. But they're like slowly sneaking it out over time so that their tower of fundamentalism stays up. But they get the one jeans block out. And to me, that's not fair. They justify it in their minds a tiny bit at a time while carefully protecting all of the other harmful views that the rest of us had to forcibly dismantle before we got the privilege of wearing jeans. I do think that Jill and Ginger are somewhat in the midst of deconstruction, and I hope they keep going. So I'll exclude them from this rant for the most part. 
But Jana or Michelle, they do have to experience the fear and nervousness that so many of us experienced the first time we got up the courage to leave the house in pants. But they conveniently exclude themselves, at least as far as I can see, from the crisis of faith, from the hard emotional work, from the learning and the guilt and the remorse and the realization that so many years of our lives were wasted. All of that is what the rest of us had to go through before and after the first time we wore the jeans. And it feels like the rest of us, to me, it feels like we got cheated. Because they're, they're trying to have their cake and eat it, too. That's a powerful statement to make. I get what you're saying. It's just yeah. my personal, you know, it's just my personal feeling and my personal trauma showing through. But I think a lot of us feel that way. And I think yeah. that's why it really can, it can stick in our craw so bad when we see that. There's a little bitterness there. I think you've earned that. Yeah, except for in the fundy world where bitterness is a sin. <laughs> bitterness is human nature, man. Uh, do you want to know my take as somebody who is nowhere near as immersed in fundamentalism as you are? or you have been. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. So my take isn't like entirely divorced from yours. So the Duggars have, I mean, they've been professional fundies for like nearly 20 years, right? Like their first TV appearance was in 2004 or something. That's when they had the first TV specials. They've been the public face of fundamentalism for almost two decades, which means that every little thing about them is going to be scrutinized, not just by like normie standards, but by fundy standards, as we all know, are obviously a lot more strict. What with like the pants thing or the, you know, dressing certain way, acting certain way. So that's 20 years of your life that you can't slip up because it's going to be on TV. And Lord knows they've had their share of scandals. They've had children fall out, decide to leave. They've had, you know, the, the huge political battles with the LGBTQ community, what with Michelle uh, and, and her terrible robocalls. And then there's everything that Josh has done. That's just like so many things. I mean, it's like, so it's 2022. Their son's in prison. All their shows have been canceled. Jim Bob has been stunningly defeated in a political campaign that he spent tens of thousands of dollars on and got like a few hundred votes, maybe. And I think that it's possible that the Duggars have been basically pushed into retirement, partially because of outside factors, you know, like their show getting canceled. But also maybe Jim Bob has developed the, dare I say, tiniest bit of self-awareness. Whoa. Yeah. And he sees, maybe he sees Josh's conviction and his election loss as a sign from God that it's time to hang up the old umbrella, at least as as far as being public figures. There's your other umbrella joke. Yeah. Not saying that they're not going to be fundy, not saying that they're, you know, throwing the whole thing away, but I'm saying that maybe they're backing away from the public eye so they don't need to follow all of the rules all of the time anymore. So there's less scrutiny. I don't, wh- hmm. And so, you know, I mean, that would track where if Michelle's like, yeah, you know, I'm going to wear pants from time to time because I don't have people watching me on TV being like, oh my God, she's wearing pants, then, you know, that's fine. That doesn't mean that they're going to do deconstructing either. So. Yeah. yeah. If that's true, though, that would be proof that they were grifters and hypocrites the whole time. <gasps> oh, no. Because no way. I know. Shock and awe. Shock but and awe. The, the whole point of being fundy, the whole point of the IBLP is to follow the rules all the time. That is the whole point of doing the damn thing. And we know that the like the Duggars didn't start out super fundy. That only happened because they had a miscarriage. 
And then they took that as a sign from God that they're like, oh no, we need to to not use birth control and then just like get hella into this whole Bill Gothard thing. Yeah, but I'm not actually going to jump into that right now because we're going to talk about adverse life experiences and becoming fundy in another episode before too long. That's going to be a fun one. I'm actually really excited for that, but yeah. That one's going to, we're, we're going to get to talk about like all of your favorite fundies in that one, which is what's exciting to me. Oof. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up this episode? Final thoughts. Final thoughts. No, I think I've said about what I wanted to say about the first 30 something pages of Bill Gothard's weirdly culty self-help book and etiquette manual. (laughs) And I think I've said what I wanted to say about Pantsgate. I think I'm good. Yeah, I think I'm good too. I just want to say thank you guys all for listening to the Leaving Eden podcast next week. What are we talking about next week? We're talking about uh, sports and masculinity in honor of it being the episode that we're coming out before Super Bowl Sunday. So that's going to be really fun. A bit of a departure from what we've been talking about uh, these past few weeks, but next week's going to be great. Uh, If you want to follow the podcast, you can follow us on social media at Leaving Eden Podcast on Facebook. Facebook and Instagram at Leaving Eden Pod on Twitter. Please join our Patreon if you want to hear an extended version of today's episode, um, including a discussion by Sadie and me of assisted suicide, which we sort of just got into for various reasons, but we had to cut for time for various reasons. But I'm glad I'm glad we got into it. I feel like that's a valuable discussion, as weird as it was how we got into it. Yeah, it was it was very interesting. I, I great discussion. But yeah, join the Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. You can join our subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. Uh, Sadie, would you like to plug your social media? Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter at Hell yeah Sadie, or on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. And you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. And until next time, yeah, until next week, I uh, hope that you guys have a great day, a great week. Uh, bye bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.